across the UK, online, on DAB, and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham, on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is very clear that we are entering a new phase in the fight against coronavirus, ladies and gentlemen. Britain's death rates are now back to normal. I'll just repeat that for you. Britain's death rates are now back to normal, according to the latest data from the Office for National Statistics. In fact, deaths in hospitals in the week ending May the 22nd are actually lower than average for England and Wales at this time of year. In Spain, uh, they have recorded the second day in a row with no deaths from COVID-19. And in Italy... Scientists are saying that the virus has all but disappeared. Now, uh, I don't know about you, but I haven't heard anybody talking about this. I haven't seen it trumpeted all over the front pages of the papers who seem more obsessed about whether or not we're all going to be able to have a summer holiday. This, to me, is pretty important news. Am I the only person that can see it? Am I the only journalist in the entire Western world that thinks that this is good news? Are we the only radio station that talks sense? I'm afraid the answer to all of those questions would appear to be yes. In Downing Street, the Prime Minister is shaking up his team and bringing in a new permanent secretary to run number 10. His name is Simon Case. He's a former aide to Prince William. The idea is to set up a new strategy committee and to give more power to Michael Gove. They're also clearing out some of the flotsam and jetsam that they've had working there for a while, uh, and they're all going to have to go back to their day jobs. Meanwhile, over at Starmer Towers, it's all doom and gloom. The leader of the Labour Party isn't interested in the facts. He's not interested in the death rates going down. He's only interested in carping from the sidelines and, in his words, putting the Prime Minister on notice to get a grip. Cheers, Sakir, but we're all right, thanks. We don't really need you to be telling anyone to get a grip. A man who couldn't decide whether he was for leaving the European Union or against it. A man who called for the sacking of Dominic Cummings but wouldn't sack his own MPs when they did exactly the same thing, if not worse. We'll be bringing you PMQs today at midday as the Commons returns to what will seem like a much more normal atmosphere in a much more busy chamber. Later on, Home Secretary Priti Patel will explain why quarantine is necessary to keep the tourism business alive, although the tourism business business doesn't agree. We'll bring you all that too. 0344 499 1000. Coming up this morning, we're joined by Chief Political Commentator for the Independent, Mr John Rental. He'll explain what the government plan is, uh, since no one else seems to be very sure, particularly Keir Starmer. And as ever, we want to hear from you as well. What are you seeing? What are you hearing? And what are you doing out there in the real world? 0344 499 1000. We're also joined by Robert Courts MP, uh, who's going to be talking trade with China and the Hong Kong situation as well. 0344 499 Homeschooling section today is all about your brain and how it works. It's going to be absolutely fascinating. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, on the fastest growing radio station on the planet. It is, of course, Talk Radio. A very good morning to you. It is Wednesday. It's looking slightly dark out there in the whole skyline look overlooking London from high above the Thames. We are sitting here. I'm not seeing a blue sky out there, but I'm not seeing any real clouds either. It just looks as though apparently uh, it's going to rain at some point later on today. And we may need the rain, to be honest, just to calm everybody down, uh, to dampen down the spirits, to stop people travelling to the beaches and absolutely filling them up and to stop people having house parties and block parties. There's one been going on uh, up in North London, up in Harlesden, uh, which has attracted an awful a lot of police activity. I can't quite understand what these people think they are doing. But let us kick things off straight away by talking uh, to our good friend, Mr John Rental, Chief Political Commentator at The Independent. John, a very good morning to you. Welcome. 
Hello there. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. I'm rather encouraged by this kind of uh, story, which has been sl- slightly hidden away this morning, uh, that basically COVID-19 deaths are falling at such a rate, uh, according to this piece in The Telegraph. The next set of figures should show no excess mortality at all. Um, are you surprised that nobody's doing more with this? The next set of figures, are, that, make, that makes a lot more sense. I wondered where you were getting those numbers from. Because yeah. the figures I saw yesterday from the Office for National Statistics suggested we were still running at uh, 2,000 uh, more deaths uh, than expected at this time of year. I can't remember if that's 2,000 a week. It must be, I suppose. Um, or 2,000 a month, maybe. Uh, but anyway, I think we're still above... Uh, what you'd expect at this time of year. Um, so I think we put the celebrations uh, on hold because I don't think we're quite back down to no excess deaths yet. Well, according to this, the latest ONS statistics, which are for the week ending May the 22nd, um, the death rate is already slightly lower than average. So that's the, I guess, oh, I okay. that's the same one that you were looking at. But anyway, all I'm saying is, is that, you know, the trend at the moment seems to be very much uh, that it is on the wane. We've got Italian scientists saying that they think it's all but disappeared from their country. Spain has had no uh, uh, deaths in 48 hours. Um, and so there is much to kind of be encouraged by, if not uh, celebrate. Yeah, but I mean, we're still having quite a lot of new cases in this country. I mean, uh, I can't remember the exact figures, but I think it's one and a half thousand new cases uh, on the government slides yeah. uh, yesterday. Um, uh, you know, so, I mean, excess deaths is obviously your best uh, measure in, in the long run and looking back and making international comparisons. But, I mean, I think if there are new cases still running at that rate, um, it's no time to, to celebrate. And I think that does raise the question of whether uh, we do need to be quarantining uh, international arrivals. And uh, that is a big uh, political argument today. Yes, it will be, and Priti Patel is going to be laying, uh, setting out her sort of case. She's already done it today in the Telegraph as well, uh, as to why she thinks that it's necessary. The only problem I've got with the quarantine uh, is that it's so loose and it's so kind of unspecific, and it allows for so many exceptions. For example, I've read all these out ad nauseum, so I apologise to listeners who've already heard me saying it. But, you know, people coming in uh, who work for Eurostar, people who are uh, health workers, people who are lorry drivers, people who work for um, the Atomic Energy Commission, in Europe, people who are coming in to do seasonal fruit picking. You know, the list goes on and on and on and on to the point where, well, if you're not going to quarantine everybody, it's not really a quarantine, is it? No, it's basically everybody can come come and go apart from tourists, I think. And, uh, you know, that that's one of the uh, key parts of the economy that is going to be uh, the last to get back up mm. and running. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm completely... Uh, I'm not convinced about this this 14-day quarantine business. I think uh, I think testing at the airport or testing, um, you know, at the at the other airport before the people set off uh, would probably be good enough. Although mm. I know it doesn't pick up uh, cases in the early stages, but um, we're we're at, we're already talking about a compromise. We're talking about something which is which has to be good enough rather than perfect, right? Because we're not going to be able to suppress. Uh, all incoming cases uh, totally. Well, if you remember way back at the beginning of this um, ridiculous situation we found ourselves in, um, 
we were told basically you can't stop the spread of this virus. Uh, probably eventually everybody will get it. It's really just a matter of trying to control the speed with which it spreads through the communities. And that's kind of what the government has done. But I'm also slightly getting fed up with this idea that they do things for reasons which they don't reveal. For example, I think this whole quarantine idea is not about quarantine at all. It's about stopping people from going on holiday. They basically don't want people to go on holiday. And this, this is going to be their way of doing it. Why not? What do you mean? Why, why don't they want people to go? On? Because they think. Because, <laughs> I mean well, because they think they think that by by, by going on holiday uh, that they will cause a problem because they will either spread the disease further or bring it back. And I think they don't want to go on holiday well, at the moment because there's no there, there could be no other reason. They might. So they they're not trying to stop people going on holiday. They're trying to control the spread of the disease. That seems perfectly reasonable. Well, no, they're me. not because if they were trying to stop the <laughs> the spread of the disease, they wouldn't have so many people being given exceptional status who can come here without yeah. being tested one way or the other. So clearly, also, if they wanted to stop the spread of the disease and they want you to go into quarantine, why would they let you go and use the tube to get home from Heathrow uh, and then go and quarantine yourself for fourteen days? Absolutely fair point. I mean, yeah, the, the argument ought to be about whether it's effective rather than what their motive is. I mean, they're not, you know, their motive is not to stop people going on holiday. Their I motive think it is. is to try and control the disease. Well, no, that's absurd, Mike. I mean, you know, they, they want to they want to control the disease and you should argue whether about whether this is effective or not. And, uh, you know, I suspect it's not particularly effective. Right. And they ought to concentrate their efforts. So, 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 you've, so you've now admitted that basically uh, the whole point of the quarantine is to stop tourists from travelling. And you've also said that it's not effective. So, no, so effect. if those two things are true, then it can only be one conclusion that you can draw. <laughs> well, no, the point is that the tourists are the soft target, aren't they? Because you can't make a special a special case for them, whereas right. uh, you know everybody else is uh, everybody else is being allowed to travel freely. Yes, but that's that's my problem with it. Let's talk a bit about this new shake-up that's going on inside of Downing Street as well, because uh, Boris Johnson would appear uh, to be appointing a new sort of permanent secretary to run 10 Downing Street by the name of Simon Case. Now, I don't know much about this guy. Apparently, he's a key aide uh, to the Duke of Cambridge. Um, what do you think this is all about, then? No, he's a very impressive uh, civil servant. He was... Uh uh, Theresa May's um, principal private secretary and David Cameron's before that. Mm. Um, very, uh, very, very experienced civil servant. Uh, and I mean, actually, he was brought in weeks ago uh, and, 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 and promoted to um, a permanent secretary rank in number 10 uh, some time ago okay. uh, as part of the beefing up of the, of the number 10 operation. Mm. Because, you know, there's some talk about Mark Sedwell, the cabinet secretary, trying to do too much. Right. Uh, and you know, obviously, when the prime minister was ill, uh, you know, there was a certain, there was probably a certain lack of grip in uh, in number ten, and I think this is part of the the attempt to sort that out. Yeah, does this? I mean, we, does this we've had, yeah. I was going to say, sorry, does this weaken Sedwell's position? Do you think? No, no, I think it's I think it's designed to strengthen it. Actually, I think he needs to get additional uh, civil servant uh, civil service backup. To try and uh, to, to try and make sure that he's got a proper ha handle on the situation, because you don't want just special advisors like uh, Dominic Cummings uh, running things. You need uh, you need some proper civil service uh, backup as well. So you know when Keir Starmer calls for the government to get a grip, then you know this is this is precisely what the government is trying to do. Whether yeah. it's effective or not is 
is another question. Well, indeed. And, and, uh, uh, there's the appointment of Michael Gove to head an operations committee as well. Uh, they're going to be re- replacing four ministerial groups. No more press conferences on a, on a weekend, uh, which is probably no bad thing. Um, but I wonder whether the daily press conference will continue for, and for how much longer that will go on. Well, I think it has to continue for the moment because I mean, the, the extraordinary thing is they're discontinuing these weekend ones because they say, you know, not enough people are watching them. But actually, you know, people people are watching these things in, in their in, in their millions. I mean, the the ratings for some of these these things. I mean, I, I saw an opinion poll last week which suggested sixty percent of the population were watching yeah. the daily brief. Right. I mean, 30 percent live and then 30 percent watching it on catch-up and mm. that is those are huge numbers so i don't think they can i don't think they can discontinue the daily briefing yet uh, but it's clearly becoming difficult because there isn't sort of daily news for them to announce right. they don't have they don't have much to say and that means you know they end up uh, saying the wrong thing or having to answer difficult questions from journalists yeah. uh, and obviously rather not do that yeah, I do see them getting shorter as well, because uh, I do remember at the beginning, they were an awful lot longer, there were an awful lot more questions. I mean, I think rather like uh, when you and I once sat in the tent of common sense in Westminster during the Brexit sort of stalemate, at one point I said to you, I, I've actually, I can't think of anything left to ask you. And I think at this point, that's kind of where we are with some of the questions, because every question that could be asked has basically been asked. Yes, I think I think that is that is absolutely right. Uh, but I think you know there is a public appetite to hear from the government, uh, you know what uh, what's going on, what they're expected to do, and mm. I think there is still some considerable confusion about uh, about the guidelines. And I think uh, I think the government does need to does need to put up a minister every day uh, to to underline what the messages are. I mean, I suppose their other problem might be if they stop doing the daily briefing, they leave the journalists to sort of go roaming around on their own uh, and being uncontrolled, and they might come up with some other stuff that they might not like even less than the stuff that they're currently doing. <laughs> well, exactly. I mean, the whole point about these daily briefings, it does actually give government the chance to set the agenda and to uh, and to control what people see and learn about, uh, about the state of the battle against uh, coronavirus. So... Uh, you know, I don't think they'll be they'll be getting rid of them yet. But you know, obviously, there's a desperation on all, you know, on everybody's part to move on to the sort of stage you're talking about, where where you know we don't have uh, daily daily death tolls mm. at all. Right. Be that would be, uh, be the time to move on. Yes, exactly right. What did you make of the shenanigans yesterday where some MPs are saying it was all a bit ridiculous, like a conga line where they were forced to vote? As somebody's pointed out to me today, you know, maybe some of these MPs should get out a bit more. This is what people are doing in supermarkets, outside supermarkets, up and down the country. So why shouldn't they have a go at it? (laughs) Yeah, there is an element of that. I mean, that's why they're there, actually, is because Jacob Rees-Mogg, uh, was saying that you know they can't ask people to go back to school or people to go back to work if MPs aren't prepared to come to right. the Palace of Westminster them and get on with their mm. their job and and he's absolutely right that it, it makes a difference when MPs are actually in the chamber uh, to intervene and ask questions uh, and to and to heckle of course um, which some people disapprove of but I think is the essence of democracy. Yes, I agree with that. But. But he's blundered straight into into a brick wall of making himself look extremely uh, foolish because he he's failed to consider the fact that you know there are some MPs that I mean just just the ones who are seventy and over for example uh, such as Jeremy Corbyn who you know under government guidelines are not supposed to leave their houses yet so 
you know, that some provision ought to have been made for them. I mean, the fact that they couldn't actually take part in voting to take their voting rights away, yeah. uh, I thought was an absolute disgrace. And, and as for the ridiculous conga line, I mean, why they can't carry on voting uh, remotely, uh, nobody knows. I mean, it is pure pig-headedness on, on Jacob Rees-Mogg's part. Well, I mean, he's a great traditionalist, I suppose he would say, and there's no reason to change uh, the way that Parliament has been run. And if you can't manage to get in for Parliament because of a particular specific reason, um, then presumably you can get some kind of pass that says you don't have to. Um, But, you know, this is going to go on for a while. um, And maybe if you're Jeremy Corbyn and you're 70, maybe you should get out of the way and leave it for some young whippersnapper to come in and take (laughs) your place. Because thanks very much indeed. Your career's over. Go and retire. Well, yeah, I mean, compulsory retirement for MPs at 70, maybe. But that doesn't apply to people with um, uh, who have uh, underlying health conditions. No, I accept that, yeah. And he ought to be allowed to take part in in Hascommon's proceedings and he ought to be allowed to vote. And Mm. I think it's an absolute disgrace. Well, I mean, yeah, but again, John, there are ways around it. I mean, people are using it as a stick to beat um, Jacob Rees-Mogg with. I mean, they could have a pairing arrangement. They could do things about helping the individuals who are in the minority who can't make it in rather than making all the other people who are in the majority have to sort of bend to their will. Yes, but they haven't done it yet. I mean, the point is Robert Halfon could not vote to take away his vote yesterday. He could not. He was not allowed to take take part. And he wasn't allowed to, to take part by video uh, in the debate. And, uh, you know, I just think that's wrong. I mean, I know, you know, Jacob Rees-Mogg is going to come up with proposals today to try and uh, to, to, to rectify that. But, I mean, he's, he's had a whole, you know, Parliament's been off for a week or 12 <laughs> days, actually. You know, he could have sorted it out. And, you know, instead we had this ridiculous farce yesterday. Yes. Well, I mean, you know, it's not the first time we've seen a farce in Westminster. I guess it won't be the last. What are you expecting <laughs> today from uh, Prime Minister's questions? First time we've seen uh, Sir Keir Starmer and Boris Johnson in the same room for a while. Yes, well, actually, I mean, what's interesting is Keir Starmer's kept a very low profile uh, recently. He didn't get involved at all in the Dominic Cummings. Well, he said he, he, would, he did say he would sack him, didn't he? Well, yes, but I mean, generally, he wasn't. He, he, he wasn't up and demanding uh, demanding Dominic Cummings go. He right. wasn't, you know, demanding a parliament or a public inquiry or any of the sort of stuff that Ed Miliband might have done. Right, um, if he'd been. Although I was told, um, I was told by one um, observer that the, the, they thought the reason for that was because there were so many Tory MPs who also wanted Cummings to go. He thought he'd just let them eat each yes. other. Well, absolutely. That's what I'm saying. I think he was absolutely right to do that, mm. I mean, to stand back and let the Tories uh, attack each other. They were doing a fine job, and you know, yesterday's farce um, was mo- was mostly a, a sort of inter- internal uh, Tory party argument, and he was quite right to stay out of that and mm. let them take lump out of each other. But he's got to uh, he's got to come to the chamber today and ask questions of of the prime minister. And I think uh, I think all pretense of so called constructive opposition is going to be is going to be dropped. And I think he'll he'll just uh, criticise the prime minister uh, for six consecutive questions on uh, on mishandling. Uh, the response to the coronavirus. Yeah. I mean, I think that's... Uh, Which, to be fair, is, know, what he's, all, all... is what he's always done, but the fact that he prefaces it with wanting to be supportive really uh, doesn't wash. It certainly doesn't wash with me. Just because you say you want to support somebody no. and then go on the attack, it doesn't mean you're supporting them. <laughs> no, exactly. I think it was. It, 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 was a, it was a pretense, this, this sort of constructive opposition. 
nonsense and and the line about you know not doing opposition for opposition's sake i think i think people like the sound of that but i don't think that's really what uh, keir starmer ever intended to do and he, i don't think he's going to do that today i think he'll go in he'll go in quite hard on the you know the, the obvious failings of the track and trace system um you know i think that's 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 an open goal and i'm sure he'll ask he'll ask a lot of questions about it yeah i'm sure he will too john thanks very much indeed john rental chief political commentator at the independent the independent republic of mike graham on talk radio and let us say a very good morning to mr robert courts conservative mp for whitney and west oxfordshire robert thanks for joining us yeah, you're welcome. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed. Well, let's talk about China, first of all, just in general terms, shall we? Because obviously, you know, the, the havoc that has been wreaked worldwide by this pandemic uh, that came from China uh, is uh, incalculable in some ways. But certainly to, to, to our economy, it could have cost something like £300 billion. Is there any way at all uh, that we could seek some kind of financial reparation from them? Well, I think that's only something uh, that would be difficult uh, to see. But what we've absolutely got to do uh, as we go forward is to ensure that uh, we are not dependent upon China for things like PPE, uh, to ensure that we have a diverse supply chain uh, so that we can get the goods that we need from many other places, not reliant upon uh, upon one country. Right. Or could we indeed produce some of that, uh, that very stuff right here in the UK? Yeah, that's a very good point. And there are going to be opportunities uh, for reshoring some things. Uh, and we probably have the best uh, advantage in some of the high-tech areas, and that's where we can really look to see that added value in the UK. We may not be able to get everything produced onshore, and I don't mm. think that's really advisable, because there are some things that we just naturally aren't going to be particularly good at in this country and can be produced more cheaply elsewhere. Mm. But the key thing is to remember that we want to have a diverse supply base not where we're reliant upon any one country yes and how is is that possible to sort of organize over time and, and if it is organized over time how much time do you need well, that's one of the lessons that we'll be learning coming out of this crisis. Um, we have an incredibly uh, dynamic mobile economy, and we can see in the way that we've set up uh, lots of diagnostics and tests and uh, manufacturing capability to deal with this, this crisis at present, that we have an economy that's able to diversify at speed. We have that enormous advantage, and we'll be able to take advantage of that going forward. Yes. And so as far as your uh, understanding of the, the trade relationship that we have currently with China, has that been affected? Um, are there trade talks ongoing? You know, where are we with, with kind of because obviously Brexit has been strangely put on the back burner, really, uh, but it's still going on. We still have to organise ourselves to leave the European Union properly by the end of the year. Uh, are there trade negotiations going on with China? Well, at present, uh, we are obviously dealing with the immediate uh, crisis and, uh, and needs of the, the current uh, coronavirus uh, yes. pandemic. Um, and going forward, we will be looking to diversify the, the trade talks that we're having across the countries or, or across the rest of the world. I mean, obviously, at the moment, we're very much focused upon dealing with the needs of the current pandemic. Um, but as we go forward, we're going to want to be uh, trading with every country um, across the world as much as possible. Mm. But it is quite important when we look at what's going on in Hong Kong at the moment that China um, complies with its international obligations because that's an important part of being a, a responsible part of the international community. Well, quite. I wanted to come on to Hong Kong, so you, you, you brought us there uh, slightly earlier than I was planning to. But let's talk about that. What's your view uh, of what China is doing and whether it is in some kind of violation of the treaty? 
Well, it's of grave concern, um, and we really hope that China will reconsider the laws that it is proposing to introduce in Hong Kong, which will massively undermine uh, the one country, two systems international agreement that was agreed uh, when Hong Kong uh, went back uh, to China uh, at the end, uh, back in 1997. Um, It's really important to just remember that this is an international obligation, uh, and China is expected to comply with its international obligations in the same way as we are. We will keep making that case. Mm. And why do you think this has kind of flared up at this particular time? Because obviously it was in the news very much um, a few months back uh, towards the end of last year, I suppose. Um, But it seems to have sort of it just seems to have come out of nowhere, seemingly. Well, it's difficult to know what the motivation would be from within Beijing. Um, But of course, the uh, China has proposed this new legislation. We've not seen the exact text of it yet, um, but they will be looking to, uh, it would ban any acts or activities that uh, would endanger China's national security, and that is used to silence dissidents within China itself. Now, the obvious concern is that that would be extended to Hong Kong, which is a complete uh, undermining of the precious concept of one country, two systems. Mm. What that essentially meant, um, without the jargon, is that it gives Hong Kong a high degree of autonomy so that its, its social and economic systems are unchanged as would its lifestyle, and its lifestyle includes rights and freedoms. So Hong Kong is very successful in part because it's been free, uh, and that is something we want to see um, continue. Uh, And we won't be uh, walking away. We expect China to uh, live up uh, to its international obligations. Uh, We will continue to work with partners across the world uh, to see that that happens. Uh, But what we've said is for the people of Hong Kong, uh, we're going to change the immigration rules that apply to British nationals overseas um, to give them um, greater rights to stay here. Yes, because Boris Johnson has in fact pledged to allow nearly three million Hong Kong citizens the right to live and work indefinitely in the UK. Um, Have we got room for three million more people? Well, I, mean, I don't think that you two more come at once, but I think it's very important. Well, that we you say that. That's, that's what Tony Blair said about the people who were coming from Poland. Uh, yeah, I appreciate, uh, you know, obviously that the, the, there is that large number might have a concern. It, it doesn't ever happen all at once. Mm. But what is absolutely important is that we stand by the people of Hong Kong. Uh, you know, they have, we have historic cultural responsibilities to them. Um, and we want to ensure that we live up to those responsibilities. Absolutely. And what about the rest of the international community uh, regarding sort of supporting the UK government in taking this stance against China? Is, is everybody else sort of singing from the same hymn sheet, as it were? Yeah, I mean, very much the close allies that we rely upon on matters like this. So Australia, Canada, the United States, we've been, we've released a joint statement with them, which has expressed the deep concerns we have over these proposed moves. Uh, New Zealand and Japan have uh, taken similar steps. And we'll be working together with those partners and others. We've raised this, for example, at the UN Security Council recently uh, to ensure that we work across uh, all partners. But as is so often the case, our close friends um, in Canada, the United States, Australia, New Zealand, Japan, uh, you know, take the same view as us, and they are equally concerned. Right. And what about the businesses in Hong Kong as well? Because obviously there are some British-linked businesses which have been there uh, probably for centuries, I suppose you might say. Last time I spoke to somebody over there about these matters, they said that a lot of them were sort of setting up shadow businesses in places like Singapore, so that if they did have to suddenly literally leave in the middle of the night, that's what would happen. I mean, is the business world of, of Hong Kong being affected adversely? I'm sure it must be. But how badly is it being affected by all this? 
Yeah, well, that's exactly. I mean, any kind of political instability uh, always affects business anyway, and particularly when it's something that could be used um, for the purposes uh, of uh, repression. Uh, and this is one of the reasons why we've taken the view that we have with regards to British nationals overseas, because of the extraordinary dynamism uh, of the Hong Kong business community. And, you know, that is something that could be a massive benefit to this country, um, as well as affording them the political protection that they uh, deserve. No, quite. And so what are you expecting from China, or if anything, what have you asked for China to do? Well, we haven't yet seen the text of this law, uh, and we will need to see that. But we would hope that China will not proceed with the law that is proposed. And the fact is that it is in contravention uh, to the agreement. Um, that was introduced in 1997. That's an international agreement, uh, and we would not want to see China in breach of it, which they uh, would appear to be if they proceed in the way that they've suggested. So we'd urge them uh, not to proceed and to uh, live up to their international Mm. obligations. Yes, and are you able in any way to sort of leverage that statement with a conversation about trade in terms of, say, the Huawei deal, uh, where I'm not, I'm still never really quite sure where we are with that because um, it still seems to be sort of floating around in the ether. Um, But certainly indications from the cabinet have been that the Huawei deal is certainly not going to be as close as it would have been before COVID-19. Yeah, it's difficult to say at the moment, um, but you're absolutely right. There has been speculation in the press about what the future uh, of that would be. I I don't have any further information on that, I'm afraid, uh, Mm. to update you on that. Um, I think the key leverage point is working with international partners. Uh, China is a welcome member of the international community, is a family of nations. But a part of being part of the family of nations is that you abide by the standards that people expect. Uh, And that means sticking to the international obligations that you have entered into. And what China is proposing to do is against the uh, international obligations, the joint declaration uh, that governs Hong Kong. We would expect them to stick to that. Okay. And finally, let me just ask you about Sakir Starmer this morning giving an interview to The Guardian in which he says he thinks that uh, uh, Boris Johnson needs to get a grip. Uh, He seems to think that the government is winging it as far as taking us out of the coronavirus crisis. What would you say to him? Well, I completely disagree with that. I mean, we have seen an unprecedented uh, international uh, pandemic, which has had a huge effect, not just about our country, but on countries all over the world. In response to that, you have seen an absolutely unprecedented response from this government in terms of rolling out schemes to support businesses, uh, to support individuals. At all points, we have seen a phased, reasonable response, which has been led by science. That is something which, in my view, is entirely appropriate and shows a very strong grip by the Prime Minister and this government. Robert, thank you very much indeed. Robert Court, Story MP for Whitney and West Oxfordshire, member of the International Trade Select Committee, uh, telling us about what the UK feels that China shouldn't be doing uh, and asking for more information on what it is that they are doing uh, before we can somehow respond. But it could well be uh, that if they do uh, crack down even harder than they have so far uh, in Hong Kong, that we may have a lot of people coming from Hong Kong to live in this country. I fully expect uh, that not three million people will come. However, Uh, We do have a a responsibility uh, to those people who are connected to this country. Peter's in Wimbledon. Hi, Peter. Hi, good morning, Mike. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm good, man. How are you? Yeah, very well. Very well. How are you surviving? Uh, I'm surviving. I've just pulled in because I've got some issues to take with with you personally as well. I think... You've been a bit unfair on Kia Stama, and your, I think your personal political allegiances kind of, kind of, kind of blind in your, your. I don't view. have any. I don't have any personal well, you, political allegiances. Well, I mean, I, I, I follow you on, on radio and, and on Twitter, and your your constant dislike of Labour and criticism. You know, what, what I what I've found in basically to say 
is that if, if, if in your opinion, guys, that media is not allowed to criticize government, opposition is not allowed to criticize the government. I've never said that. Reached, we, we have reached the point where I've never said we that. have the highest death toll in Europe. And we have the well, no, wait, no, that's not true. Well, we, we, it is it's true. Not. No, it's not. Yeah. How, do you, how do you know that? Well, the official statistics of... Uh, of oh, OK. So we have, the highest, we have the highest recorded death rate. Absolutely, yes. But other countries are not recording their deaths in the same way. So you can't well, say that it's the highest. Well, the same way, not the same way. The country you don't know, you don't know that. We, we, no, we're comparing ourselves to the country which, which, which have... Italy, for example. Italy has yeah. already admitted that their death rate is probably an awful lot higher than the one which they have recorded. Well, so is ours, because oh, no, it's ours not. not all recorded. And the, and the thing is, you know it yourself. Well, we've also recorded the deaths of people who didn't die from COVID-19 as dying from COVID-19. Well, we've recorded... It's a, it's a shibboleth. It's, it's a shibboleth, Peter. Yeah, it's a shibboleth. It's, you should move on. Well, Come up with something well, better. Yeah, well, we, we, we can move on. The thing Go is on. That, that we can move on. What because, else you got? Because it's, not, it's not the point. My main point was that if... If our media is accused of bias, yeah, by people like yourself, don't you and, think and it is? Position, and the opposition is accused of hypocrisy. Yeah, who who is going to be speaking on behalf of those those relatives and loved ones who've lost due to COVID nineteen due to ineptitude and criminal negligence of our government? Well, can yeah? you please Who's tell me? Can you sorry? Can you please excuse me, Peter? Peter, excuse if, me, excuse me. Yeah. Would you mind telling me uh, which people you're talking about? Because I don't believe that the government has caused the deaths of anybody by criminal negligence, and that's a libelous statement. I would be be very careful what you say about what, criminal negligence. Well, um, I'm hope the HSC is going to look into this because what happened is people who are in charge of purchasing protective equipment yeah, were caught changing labels on masks and stuff like that. Are you talking about Public Health England or are you talking about NHS procurement? Well, this is the uh, Public Health England, NHS procurement. Yeah, well, that's got nothing to do with the government, has it? Yeah, well, they're absolutely nothing to do with the government. Who, who, so you're accusing, point, are you accusing, hang on, hang on, are you yeah. accusing Public Health England of criminal negligence? Well, the HSC is going to accuse them. It's going to, it's going to bring the court to Oh, case. you know that, do you? Yeah, case to court. Yeah. How, how do you know absolutely. that? How do you know yeah. that? Michael, what, 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 have you got a crystal ball? Have you got a crystal ball, Peter? Who's going to HSC is going to take to court? Is not I'm not a lawyer. Well, you're well, not a lawyer, but you're also why. you're also not a, a stargazer, and you're also not presumably a fortune teller. So you don't know what they're going to do in the future. Well, there will be so someone's going to be held responsible for the death of doctors and nurses due to lack of PPE, and you know that, Michael. There's no, no, I don't. I don't know that. Playing, no, absolute rubbish. Games, yeah? no, I'm not playing. People, no, you're, you're, as usual, Peter, you're jumping up and down. You're all excitable uh, because you don't really like me very much, and that's fine. You're very welcome to listen to me if you don't like me. But if you're going to make an argument about something, please, please give it some thought so you don't come across as a complete and utter idiot because that's what you sound like. Explaining it to you. Are you going to listen to what we're going to explain to you? Well, that's not really worthwhile so far. Have you got anything else? What else you got? I run the business. If I fail to provide my workers with a basic PPE and, God forbid, one of them get injured or die, I'm going to be, and rightly so, I'm going to be taken to court and prosecuted. Yeah, you just started another sentence with the word if. What? You just started the sentence with the word if. Word in. What's the word if? If. If. You know, if. Like if something yeah, might happen. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, if I, uh, you know, tracked you down and traced you and came to your house and killed you, I would probably be charged with murder if I did it. Yeah. But so I didn't do it. People who failed to provide EPP for the doctors. And Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about? Sick patients, yeah? Who are you talking about? Who are you talking about?
Well, you just talk about Public Health, health England. Well, are you accusing... Human. I've asked you before, and I'll ask you again. Are you accusing Public Health England of criminal negligence? Because you have to be well, very I'm careful. Not the accu- I'm not the prosecutor. HSC is going to look into this. But move on. let's just move on so to another what, point. Because well, you better hurry up, because we've got to go to, to uh, yeah. Prime Minister's questions. You've got one more question. Try and try and come up with something decent, will you? For God's sake, well, man. I'll just explain to you, that the, and I'll explain to you exactly my point, and you just coming up around that I'm, I'm going to prosecute and going to take libel actions against the... It's I don't think you know what you're talking about, Peter. You need to allow the opposition to do. I'm not stopping. I'm not stopping them from doing anything. How am I stopping them from doing anything? Because you're calling Keir Starmer a hypocrite. He is a hypocrite. The job of the opposition is to hold those in power to account. I'm not telling him. I didn't say he couldn't do it. I just said he's a hypocrite. That's all. On our behalf. He's not dead on my behalf. Your job as well. Peter, you don't know what you're doing. Listen, I'll tell you what. Go away, read some more, and learn how to talk on the radio. And then the next time you call up, you might actually be able to make an argument that makes some sense. As of now, however, you need to go back to school uh, and you need to find out what an argument actually is. Cheerio. This is Talk Radio. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. And it's time for our homeschooling segment, which is what we do uh, just after the news at 12.30 every single day. But just before we get to that, here is something which is relevant to homeschooling. uh, Because over in Wales, apparently, all schools are going to be open from the 29th of June for a four-week term. Uh, That, I assume, also includes secondary schools. It says, however, that uh, the four-week term will end... On the 27th of July, we'll see staggered starts, lessons and breaks for different year groups. So obviously, kids won't be probably going every single day. Only a third of pupils at the most will be in school at any one time. So it'll be a sort of a staggered return. But I think that's a good idea because I think children do need to go back to school, if possible, before the summer, even if it's only for a couple of weeks. I mean, I know that um, that my children uh, are very happy not going back to school, but I keep saying to them, if there's a chance that you can, I think you should. Absolutely. Now, let us talk to Dr. Emma Jane Kilford, postdoctoral research fellow at the UCL Department of Clinical Educational and Health Psychology because uh, we're going to talk about the brain and you know how some people's brains are better than other people's brains uh, but it may well be that Dr Emma can tell us why that is. Uh, Emma very good uh, afternoon to you thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Not at all that's a very very um... and um, yeah I'm probably lifting my emotions on the screen now. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> That's a very enviable title uh, you've got there, which is uh, sounds terribly, terribly important. Um, but you are um, involved with uh, educational and health psychology. Um, and I'm going to be asking you to please explain to us how our sort of emotions work, how our brain, um, I guess, takes in information and processes it very quickly and then acts upon it. I'm one of the many people that has um, decamped to the countryside to <laughs> look after family members. And um, it's wonderful. I have uh, lovely views, but um, the internet connection is a little bit wobbly. So <laughs> yes, I know. <laughs> well, this is the price we pay. You were, in the, you were in the midst of answering, and I think you were saying, I think you were saying that it was rather a difficult question to kind of answer uh, all in one go. Uh, but what I'd asked you to do was to try and describe the kind of the process by which our brain goes through uh, when it takes information in and then decides to act on something yeah of course so I mean um, I've got a background that's in both neuroscience and psychology Um, so I think in some ways they have different views but there's a lot that kind of comes the same between them and it, it kind of can be helpful to think about both of those things so from a psychology perspective then we kind of think about our emotions as the ways that we react 
react to what's happening around us, how we interpret it. So if someone gives me a slap on the back, my emotions are probably going to be different depending on whether I think it's a friendly back slap or someone trying to shove me out the way or it's because I'm choking and I need help. So the way I think then really does change kind of how I feel the emotions. But then you were talking about the brain and from kind of the field of neuroscience, emotions, at least more traditionally, they've been viewed as these adaptive ingrained biological responses to our environment um, things that have been around for a very long time and that serve really important purposes so they kind of help direct our attention to what's important right and so can you train your brain to act in a particular way or to or to kind of get better at, at processing information I mean, you can it depends what you mean by better, but you can certainly you can certainly train um, aspects of your brain. Better is a tricky one because the way that the brain kind of works, it's like this limited resource. Um, so you can, if you engage in one kind of thinking, often it will be at the expense of something else. So even in terms of the way that we have emotions, we have these like faster, simple and automatic emotions and they can be really helpful in situations where we need to do something quickly so if we detect danger or we think we've got a 10 pound note on the ground and we want to grab it then these can be like the helpful responses whereas sometimes if for example um i'm out on a date and i think that the person i'm with would actually think quite poorly of me if i ran off to grab a tenner off the floor then i might want to engage kind of some higher level emotional slower deliberate processing systems to think how do i change my behavior in line with my goal which is to impress my date in that instance yes exactly so we can right. certainly train these types of processes and um, the question is like learning when when to use different types of processes so it's not like one type is better um it's that the brains we can do all these different types of processing and the trick is really learning when to use the process that will get us what we want at the right time and that's that's something that we're looking into how much that can be trained yes and i mean as far as the way that the brain kind of grows from when you are first born um obviously there are certain things i guess that you would say that that are um, sort of innate if you like things that, that that will just develop naturally um how different is your brain from say when you're born so when you'd say 21 what changes Oh, it it changes absolutely massively. So I didn't actually know you were going to ask me about developmental stuff at all, but that's actually kind of the area I'm most interested in. Oh, good. Well, I never really know um, what I'm going to... I I never really know what questions I'm going to ask. I just kind of go with it. It's a bit sort of organic, this show. No, that's great. So, I mean, very kind of loosely put, what we can think about is that there are types of emotion processing that do happen quite early on in life, but different parts of the brain... So the brain works in kind of these networks and... The way that they work changes as we experience the world and get older, but also there are biological changes that change Mm. that. And different networks change at different rates. So one type of um, brain network we know changes a huge amount during the teenage years and into the 20s um, is a network of regions called the social brain. Right. And this is part of the brain that is it's active whenever you're doing anything to do with processing social information or other people and emotions are inherently social things so even though we can kind of um, be afraid of a spider if we're on our own so many of the types of emotions that we have 
um, these kind of very much involve thinking about other people. And some of these more kind of complicated types of emotions and the way we process them, they show a much more gradual development as we get older. Right, interesting. So your environment presumably is important as well for, for the development of the brain in terms of what you're witnessing, what you're being told by the people that you're, you're being raised by, I suppose. Yes, yeah, certainly. So I think I mentioned before that we, we do think about emotions as these adaptive responses. So particularly these automatic um, responses, they're designed to alert us to things that are in, are, sorry, are in our environment that it's really important that we pay attention to. But obviously that changes depending on what our environment is. So mm. we know from studies um, that sadly um, people that have grown up um, in very difficult, challenging environments. Um, even as adults, when they are not in these challenging environments, um, they show an enhanced reaction to negative emotional faces in the brain. Um, and they show that even if the faces are scrambled up or mm. blurred. And so it's, um, they've kind of developed what is actually, when they were a child, a very useful skill, which is to have a very vigilant ability to adapt even the tiniest kind of change of someone's face to maybe getting angry. Mm. And that could have been extremely important to them. But then um, as they get older, if their environment changes, which we hope it does, that kind of vigilance is going to become very tiring. Um, It could lead you to feeling anxious a lot. You might be kind of detecting and even responding to threats. And some of them might be false alarms. And that over time can kind of change the way that you think about things in the world and that's kind of one of the real challenges and the work that I'm interested in kind of thinking about the mechanisms and how we can kind of change those to help people find things a bit easier. Yes and is that part of what people call emotional intelligence or is that just a kind of a catch-all phrase? Um, oh, I never know what that means. I, (laughs) (laughs) um, I mean I think when people talk about emotional intelligence they're talking about the skill with which um, we kind of detect uh, other people's facial expressions. I really should know that. Um, I suppose that is kind of, you could call it that. What we're less sure about is um, we know that with things like um, stress, mood and anxiety disorders, we tend to see more kind of systematic patterns. Um, So it's not necessarily that we are better at recognising all types of emotional information Mm. quite often it's just the negative ones so that's kind of that's giving us a biased representation of the world around us or at least it can do and over time that can change the way that we think about the world so it's not kind of just like being better at all emotions Right. It's a fascinating subject. We could probably talk all day about this. We may have to get you back on, uh, Emma, to talk about it some more. Thank you so much uh, for joining us for the homeschooling section today. Apologies for the earlier uh, problems with the line. But Dr. Emma Jane Kilford, postdoctoral research fellow at the UCL Department of Clinical, Educational and Health Psychology. I feel as though we just kind of dipped our toe into that subject, really. Uh, so we may have to come back to it uh, because it's obviously an awfully big area uh, to talk about, really. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We've talked an awful lot uh, in the last few days, probably in the last couple of weeks really, about the possible reopening uh, of pubs. There's more and more pubs opening uh, in London certainly now uh, for takeaway 
drinks and lots of people are, are, um, are making use of that quite clearly uh, taking the drinks to play maybe a park some places that you can sit outside the pub restaurants of course are slightly different matter uh, the hospitality business is suffering really really out of all proportion to an awful lot of other businesses perhaps apart from the travel business we're going to talk now to Marcus Waring uh, a chef who was on the show uh, sometime last year because he had a new book out Marcus welcome back thank you very much for joining us Oh, my pleasure. Good to be back. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely right. Now, you've done a very interesting survey of people's attitudes to kind of returning to to restaurants um, after uh, the, the, the COVID problem passes or yeah. perhaps during. I mean, what's your, before we get into the, the meat and drink of that, what's your best estimate as to when uh, hospitality businesses and, and, and restaurants in particular could open? I think... Um... I think they're being very cautious at the moment and not really giving too much away, um, which is proving quite stress, stressful for a lot of people. Yeah. Uh, if I was going to hazard a guess, I'd probably say uh, beginning of August. Mm. Um, but I think I'd, ideally uh, for restauranting, I think September would okay. be... Uh, would be. I, I, I believe that we've got to get through this summer period and we've got to be very careful and very cautious. Yeah. Uh, there is a lot of stress, not just in our world, but in, in, in all walks of life at the moment. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I'd like to think that if we play safe now and do the right thing, when hopefully all the schools can go back potentially in September, I think that will be a real start of a little bit of normality. And I believe that that could be the time that things will start to sort of start to sort of come back together with a little bit more, uh, you know, normality, I suppose. Yes. So I'm going to say September is my guess. Okay. I mean, some of the people I speak to uh, in the business say the two metre rule is a real game changer because if they could get it down to one meter which is what the distancing is in some countries and many other countries actually in europe um one meter would be a possibility for a lot of restaurants to be able to to not only open again but to actually make a bit of money Mm. but at two meters that's going to be really hard it's going to be tough um there's no two ways about that my concern is is not just for guests but the staff Uh, the staff especially in the kitchen two meter even one meter ruling doesn't really apply so i think the rules are there uh, but i think they're going they're there to be broken and that's unfortunate because it's not possible for chefs to distance themselves from each other um i think from a um, i think from a customer point of view there's a lot we can do we can remove the tables we can you know have paper menus there's so many things we can do at the front um but there's still there are still some gray areas and no one's going to have an answer for how does the plate of food get from a kitchen to the table in front of a customer Mm. um no one's going to ask answer that question and that that doesn't go away what we are going to do is set some dates set some times and some guidelines um and we 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 get on we we get on with it Uh, and I think if we can get the industry back up and running, um, I think the industry will probably take care of itself. But there are a lot more changes that the industry is waiting for at the moment. Um, and that's uh, the you know, furlough has been a great scheme. Um, rent, rent is a huge issue in VAT. Mm. Uh, there needs to be some changes on the horizon if our industry is going to survive. The margins are small yeah. um, and uh, they're going to get even smaller. And I think people, and I think people don't have deep pockets in the, in, in the Cajun industry. So it's going to be very, very difficult. And there's going to be a lot of pain down the line, running up to Christmas and beyond uh, of restaurants closing, unfortunately. Yes. And presumably a lot of the staffing levels um, will be very different because if you are serving fewer people, then you need fewer staff. Yep. And it may well be that many staff, I mean, uh, part-time people uh, people working on sort of zero hours contracts have already gone off somewhere else to find another job because they simply can't wait to get back to work because they can't afford not to work 
That's right. I, my advice to, to anyone on a, on a short-term contract or a, a hourly contract in my industry, I'd say go and find a, a employment elsewhere mm. um, for safety and to get some money coming in, whatever, if that's possible. Uh, and you have to be very careful that on, in, in the hospitality industry, there are, without doubt, there are without doubt going to be redundancies. That's, that's inevitable. Um, it's an industry that's been hit the hard, one of the hardest and it's going to take years for it to recover or to come back to any form of normality. You know, I sent this survey out to my database, my guests. I wanted to sort of to find out a, a small roadmap as to what they were thinking. And it was fascinating mm. and, and interesting to see. Uh, and it does help that they are willing to come back, but it's going to be slower. It's going to be slower. Uh, uh, they're, going to have, want, they're going to want certain things uh, in, in, in line, such as temperature checks, uh, the, 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 the distancing. There are, there are things that customers are expecting, and we're going to have to, to make sure that we deliver that. Yes. It's a great survey, by the way, because apart from anything else, it's nearly 9,000 people. I wish the political people would do surveys with such large numbers because they tend to base theirs on, <laughs> on very small numbers, unfortunately. But things like, for example, uh, guest measures, it says 62% not comfortable wearing a mask, 65% not comfortable wearing gloves um so i think you get a pretty good idea there that we still haven't quite made that leap that a lot of countries have done um where masks are kind of you know more or less de rigueur you know yeah and uh, there's been a massive debate on it at the beginning of this uh of the virus where they were the virus where they weren't necessary we didn't need to wear them we were fine without them keep it for the for the for the frontline uh nhs staff which is absolutely correct and then the message comes down the line that they're important, that we need to start about thinking about wearing them. Well, mm. unfortunately, face masks in restaurants, uh, don't, I don't think work. Um, I don't think it's what customers want. And I think the people, if we have to wear face masks, I think it won't look right. I, I, can't, imagine customers, I can't imagine customers sitting in a restaurant wearing a face mask mm. and having a nice time. You might as well probably just not bother and maybe have a takeaway, stay at home or go to a, a restaurant that's outside. And I think that's what we're trying to find out is what guest expectations are. Um, we can do whatever our guests want us to do if they're prepared to come back and enjoy our food and our wine. And what we're not prepared to do is open our restaurants to have empty tables, mm. have empty tables, because we'll be going under very, very quickly. Um, I think there are some. I think there are. There can be some very simple solutions if the government really do help our industry with the 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 rent problem yeah. that a lot of restaurateurs are, are really really worried about we can manage our costs we can manage our staff we can look after our customers we can cook the food serve the wine we can do all of that what we can't do is have is have huge bills being put in front of us before we've even put any food on a plate mm. and i think that's what everyone's struggling to sort of work out rishi's yeah. done a great job the chancellor he needs to do more he, he needs to do so much more and i'm a little bit fearful of this budget this, this, this emergency budget, because putting taxes up or changing it in that direction is just going to make the problem even bigger. No. So I, I hope he's got some um, fantastic, um, fantastic thinking hat on at the moment uh, and his team to come up with some fantastic ways of helping uh, the, the hospitality industry. And we've also got the airports practically closed down mm. with no one coming into the country. So it's just a, a real struggle at the moment. And there is a lot of worried people. Yes. And one of the interesting areas of concern mostly is other guests and guest bathrooms. Would you countenance, do you think, as a, as a, if you were a restaurant owner, would you countenance the possibility of maybe some kind of certificate-based entry? You know, like if you've been tested and you're either negative or you have shown uh, to have had the antibodies, therefore you've had the disease. I mean, could it work on that basis that you only allow people in um, who actually are safe, if you like? I, I don't think we can police that. Um, I think it could work. 
but you have to also remember to actually police that to actually police that process you need staff to do that for you yeah. and this is it's all very well big companies like ikea and bnq and mcdonald's and all the amazing big stores that have all got people on the door that's another cost that we can't afford mm. um so yes we can do that but i can't afford to do that and and i'm sure a lot of people can't either no um so so there's some 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 great ideas out there putting pretty there but in, 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 in the practical side of it, it doesn't work. And I think what the government needs to start thinking about is segregating different industries and treating them differently. What a blanket cover of ideas or, or rules does not apply. And that's the, the next stage of what it is that they need to be thinking. You need to take hospitality, restauranting, bars and pubs, and give them their own rules that work for them. Absolutely. Well, and private that, yeah. private rooms right. is, a, is a great idea as well. But until such time as you open up again, Marcus, I'll just have to uh, cook those delicious recipes from your cookbook, which I got the last time you came in, uh, which I'm working my way through. So thank you very much indeed. Marcus Waring, uh, chef, talking there about public attitudes to going back out into restaurants. And of course, lots of people want to do it. The question is, when can we do it? Talk radio across the UK, online, on DAB and on your smart speaker. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. Mid-morning with Mike Graham. Talk Radio.